It's a beautiful hymn, that, isn't it? Um, so full of the truth of the Christmas message. I, uh, I'm sorry we didn't get those pictures earlier of the bears, but I, I'll, you can see them sometime. They're up here if you want to see them later. Um, I, I hesitated to use it. A humorous retelling of the Christmas story. There are so many of them. We, I used to go down to the playgroup in my previous church, and they always the children did their, their nativity, and it was always done to song, and it was always it was always quite witty. They did "Whoops a Daisy Angel," um, which was a, an angel with a broken wing, and and how that angel saw the Christmas story. There are so many retellings of it. Michael Mapurgo's book that was televised a few years ago. Um, um, with, with, with the, the on angel wings, showing it all from an angel's perspective. And there's so many. story told from the innkeeper's perspective, a story told from Joseph's perspective, a story told, believe it or not, from the donkey's perspective, or I remember a children's book which had a little mouse that watched the Christmas story. They're all great. But I always have a little bit of a wonder as I hear them. What's the implication when we jazz up the story and try to find a new way to tell it? Is it almost as if we're saying this story is boring unless we've got a different way? Unless we can bring a different in, pardon the pun, then actually the whole story becomes boring. But what can be boring about this story? The word that brought all things into being became flesh the beginning of all time entered time, the light that was eternal, shining in the darkness, God becoming a man, and we beheld his glory, says John. We beheld his glory. Or as Luke will have it, as the angels sang their song, glory to the Lord. The glory of the Lord shone among them. This should blow our minds. This should absolutely blow our minds. If this is true, this is the greatest story ever told. This is the center of the whole of the universe, that God became a human being entering to time for us, this incarnation. And yet, as we come to celebrate at Christmas, we seem to put so much on top of it as if it was not enough. And so we have created Christmas as a nice day to gather together, a nice day to think nice thoughts and eat nice food and sing nice songs. But what a day. As one group put it, man shall live forevermore because of Christmas Day. Not just a mere nice story. And then there's Santa. Now, I'm not going to knock Santa, don't worry. I'm not going to blow away anything about Santa at all, but here is always my problem with Santa. Even if we saw flying reindeer and a magic sleigh and a host of elves, would not the truth that God became a man born for us to give us everlasting life be so much bigger than even the biggest of Santa stories that we might imagine. My problem with Santa in a church isn't got to do with pagan origins of Santa or any of those things that people will say to knock him or that I'm channeling my inner Oliver Cromwell. It's this. 
How on earth can we stop and look at the story of the incarnation and it not so blow our minds with greatness that anything else, no matter how magical and wonderful, just pales into insignificance? You see, it's not just that we find a bit of mood for a season. It is that we hear something that calls us with all of our being and our inner hearts to worship. To worship that which is so much bigger than us, the eternal love for, of God made known in Bethlehem, in the Savior who would come and would die for us who would rise again, that the whole of creation may be made new. Yet every year, every minister is faced with nine sermons on the same themes. And so we plow the gospel text looking for a new in. Sorry. A new angle. And we've told it from the story of every character that's there. In fact, it's not illegitimate to do that because the Bible story isn't all John's big themes of, of life and word. It's Luke and Matthew with the stories of Magi and shepherds, Mary and Joseph, Simeon, Anna, Zechariah and Elizabeth and John. But the problem with some of these stories is that we sort of miss the point. Because we read these stories and we focus on the characters. Let's learn more about Mary. Let's think about Joseph. Let's see it from their perspective. What does that teach us? How can they be moral exemplars for us as we live our lives? Mary, full of faith and obedience, so we should have faith and obedience. Joseph, the quiet family man who supported everybody, a good role model for men today. The shepherds going wondrously to see the good news and then becoming missionaries for it, so we should be missionaries. And all the time, it's telling us how we should live like wise men and follow our stars and, and, and do these things that we might be better people. And suddenly, Christmas has become a morality tale. A tale of how we live in better ways and how we fix this world. How we act like the star characters in this story to somehow bring a, a new reality to the world around us. And there is no doubt that the world needs fixing. John, in his prologue to his gospel, speaks about the darkness. He doesn't explain the darkness. He doesn't elaborate on what that darkness is because he doesn't have to. We all know the darknesses in life and the need to do something about it. But the human reaction to all of that is, well, let's do something. There's a virus out there. Let's find a cure. And that will salt the darkness and life will be better again. And our scientists put their minds to it. And we're grateful for that. There's climate change out there. 
So let's get our thinking caps together and see what we can do. Maybe we can recycle the Christmas paper, or maybe we need to build some new energy plants, or maybe we need to do something to sort out that part of the darkness. Or there's any number of things. If we gave a bit more to charity and supported this and did this good cause and made this difference in our community, then we could do something. Or we can get politically motivated. All the problems in the world. If only we could change the constitution or the politics or something else, we could make things better. But the problem with all of that is this. You can analyze the darkness, the disaster, the outrage, the crime. You can be determined to sort it out. You can look for a solution that these things should stop happening and never happen again. But the problem with it is, as we always know, is it always happens again. The lesson of history is that we learn nothing from history because the story just repeats itself. You know the story of The Hobbit. If you haven't read it, that's what to do if you're in lockdown. Tolkien's The Hobbit, great story. But at the risk of a spoiler, there's a big dragon in it, and in the end of it, they kill the dragon. I'm sorry if I've given the whole game away, but basically that's the plot. But of course, it doesn't stop there, does it? Those who know Tolkien's books know that Tolkien, after he'd written The Hobbit, went on and wrote The Lord of the Rings. Three books, far more words. And in that, Gandalf says this on the death of the dragon. Always after a defeat and respite, the shadow takes another form. It grows again. Whatever we do, and however we try to arm ourselves, and however we try to change the world, and however we try to take on the role of being the Savior in whatever problem or difficulty it is, we are not the Savior. And Christmas isn't intended to motivate us to love a little more, to stop a little more, to think a little more, as good as all those things are. But sometimes they are almost like taking a tea light and lighting it in the middle of a dark forest. For a second, it makes a difference, and then the battery gives out, and it flickers, and it goes. But John says the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness shall not overcome it. For the light was there before the darkness, and the light will be there after the darkness. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh, and the Word spoke. And the Word always speaks. The world changes forever. The tea light, the advent candle, are not a little bit of romance in the midst of a dark world, but rather... They are spoilers, little pointers to the greater truth, the greater truth of the meaning of Christmas, the meaning of Easter, the meaning of Scripture, the meaning of history. And all the little stories that we tell ourselves, all the little myths, all the Disney films that we watch where we yearn for the happily ever after are all pointing to that yearning within us. All the myths perhaps not completely untrue, whether it be the Santa story or the three bears, for they all bear testimony to the greatest myth, the true myth. 
that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not ever perish, but have eternal life. And so, the danger that we hear this story and we allow it to make us feel good, to be a bit more hopeful, to try a bit harder, to be a bit more loving, as if it was all about enabling me that I might be the savior, the solution, the change maker. But actually the story says the opposite. It starts not with human potential, but with human lack of potential. Joseph arrives in Bethlehem. We read that for so long with finding that there was no room in the inn, but we know that the texts have corrected themselves to suggest that there was no guest room. Now, what that probably means is that Joseph had family in Bethlehem, a large extended family. He was from the tribe of, of David. He had all sorts of cousins and different relations. And in those days, you didn't stay in inns if you had any respectability anyway. You stayed in people's guest houses. You relied on ancient hospitality that you would always have a bed because people would open their homes to you. They would open their guest room to you. They would let you sleep on the floor. But there was no guest room. What does that mean? It means that Joseph had so little social capital that he couldn't even persuade his relatives to let him in when he had a pregnant wife. Was it the scandal? Was it the shame? Or was it just that he was the lowest of the low? He couldn't do that, guys. Stop and think what that means for a man. When you can't even provide a place for your wife to have a baby, you are so powerless, so poor, so little contact, so little relevance, so little self-respect that you are nothing. Be like Joseph. The other side of this is this whole thing is happening because the Emperor Augustus decreed a decree that all the world should be for the story. Who was the Emperor Augustus? Well, Augustus had started off life as Octavian. He was the nephew or the adopted son of Julius Caesar. When Jesus, Julius Caesar had been assassinated, we know this story from the ancient Roman writers, Augustus had moved to the fore. First of all, he had been part of the group of folk that fought and got revenge against the assassins of Julius Caesar. Then he began to rule the world, him and Mark Antony, ruling the whole world until he fell out with Mark Antony. Mark Antony fled to Egypt, took up with Cleopatra. They fought a big battle that changed the whole of the Roman world. This story is well told in the Roman writers. And Augustus became the first emperor, as it were. He ruled for the first time as one man over the whole of the Mediterranean world. He was called by the Senate father of the fatherland. They took his father, Julius Caesar, his adopted father, and they called him a god. And therefore they looked at Augustus and they said, even in his own lifetime, he is the son of a god. The father of the fatherland. And they called him the savior of the world. The bringer of peace. Here's the whole point. 
This isn't a story about Augustus doing any of those things. It's a bit part. He's issuing his decree But this is the story of God. What God is doing to save the world, to bring peace, to change everything. And here is the message for us. Oh, there's lots of saviors in this world. They have come and gone over the centuries. Globalization, Marxism, nationalism, capitalism, every type of ism that there has been that human beings have said, if only we do this, everything will change. It did not. Augustus Caesar would never hear of Jesus. His successors would. They would try to persecute the followers of this non-entity whose father couldn't even find him a home. Until they fell, the baby with the parents from nowhere would triumph over everything. This isn't a story about human activity or human potential. It doesn't matter whether you're Joseph with nothing who can do nothing, or you're Augustus with all the power you can do nothing. Even the wise men are so stupid they can't even get to the right place. The point in all these characters is this. They worshipped. They were given glimpses of what God was doing in Jesus, and they worshipped. Mary singing her song of the ancient prophecies that God was fulfilling. Joseph hearing the angels sense that this was Christ the Savior, God with us. The shepherds glorifying God and singing His praises, echoing that of which the angels had sung and the wise men coming into the stable and falling in worship before. That is Christmas. It is the recognition of what we can't do, what we can't build, what we can't achieve. It is the recognition of our fallibleness, our brokenness, our selfishness, our sin. And then to stop and realize that which we did not ask for that which we could not achieve, that which we could not do by our striving or our trying harder has been done for us. For this day is born a Savior, a Savior who is Christ the Lord and triumphs over all. So let us end just now our thought not by dwelling on Mary or Joseph or an emperor or a wise man or a donkey or a bear, how we might do better, but reflecting on what God did. I'm going to use the words of the Nicene Creed put together a couple of hundred years later as the church tried to articulate what had happened, who this was, this Savior. It goes further than the Apostles' Creed does in spelling out who Jesus was. So let's stand and say the words of this ancient creed together. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, 
God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate in the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.